I thought you were dead. Sun out of your eyes and be yourself. Heard you were dead. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. That man's dead back then. It was worse than dead. He must be dead. Is this a dead man, Ducky? I gave up drinking today. You gave up drinking <laughs> really late after an hour ago. Yeah, an hour, an hour ago. ago. Yeah, stop drinking. <laughs> that was that was when you gave it up. Yeah, I'll probably be drinking by the end of this episode. Yeah, you know, I know how I'll be. Well, we welcome all of you to grab some celebratory whiskey while you listen to this episode. Hey, whiskey. That's right. Yeah, grab that whiskey, especially if you're driving. <laughs> If you're not driving, <laughs> fuck you. Welcome to Roast Mortem. You belong here. My name is Tom. My name is Travis. I'm on a Razor scooter the entire episode. Uh, my name is Connor. Uh, I am not on a Razor scooter. But I still oh. have a scar from falling off a Razor scooter in elementary school. It's true it- suffering, in which we will be able to compare some of the soldiers of tonight's story to Connor falling off a Razor scooter. Very similar. Yeah, Connor, That's could right. you do a, like a sick could, like bunny hop on them, or like the ones where you like jump and then flip the thing around? No, I like I've got I got a lot of cuts in my ankles trying to do that one. Um, just like kicking the the scooter <laughs> at the side of your foot. <laughs> uh, no, I uh, I could do a bunny hop. That was probably about it. Sick, sick. Yeah. I always thought it was funny when Razor scooters came out, and they were like. And I guess now they have, like, the electronic scooters, and they kind of do it, but it's like, if you're a businessman commuting to Wall Street, you can grab your Razor scooter and go down to Wall Street. Yeah. Wasn't there some kid in our high school that, like, fell down a hill on a Razor scooter because, like, the welding broke, and it basically just paid for his whole college career? Yeah, the welding snapped on the joint, and they sued the fuck out of him. God bless that kid. You know, every one of us, in such a litigious society we all wish for a little welding to snap every here and there yeah so we can pay for those things jet fuel can't melt razor scooters that's all i'm saying (laughs) and i'm glad you're on my page uh we don't have much to talk about this week right no one's been doing anything it's post thanksgiving it doesn't matter all i've done in the last week is i ate some nachos Yeah. yeah I've absolutely ate many different. Co- I took I took three bags of different flavors of combos, mixed them together as a grab bag. Mm. So I wouldn't know if I'm having a pizza one or a cheddar one or maybe even a string cheese one. Right. Since last time we talked, I've quit drinking seven times. <laughs> That's one more times than you failed to quit drinking, though. So you're on the right side. I think so. I would like to consider myself. <laughs> A revolutionary of the sober community, um, in which I'm not actually sober. Tom, do you have the X's on the back of your hands now? I put them on uh, my feet. Oh, sick! Yeah, so, so you I can get like, to look at them. So you can kick fascists in the face with your sober feet, punch a Nazi, and kick my bad habits in the asshole. <laughs> uh, who cares about our weeks, our times? You're here for uh, Hague Part Three listeners correct correct yeah we're deep in the mud right connor we're we're hearing whistles we're having you know what's weird a world war one veteran 
uh, you know, obviously the explosions, you know, you hear a 4th of July veterans have a tough day with that. I'm sure <laughs> World War One whistles or uh, World War One's veterans would also have that problem. But they'd have a problem at a rave where there's fog machines and whistles being blown. Oh, I didn't even think of the fog machines. That really, yeah, that would really throw them off. Yeah. They're just trying to go see Van Halen, and all of a sudden they set off the the, the pyrotechnics in the fog machine, and they're they're terrified. Yeah, yeah. I also hate slow moving gases. <laughs> uh, big fan of the faster ones. Big so. fan of fans to move those gases along. I yeah, yeah we all want that. No one wants yeah. to sit in the room with the same gas all the time. I think uh, so, Glenn, Connor. Take us back to the awful battlefields, the Western yeah, Front. I want to know more about bear, uh, low pressure systems and high pressure systems and moving air. Well, sadly, the wind is going to be less important this episode because oh. by this point they have gas shells, so now they can just shell the German lines with gas, and the Germans can do the same right back. So we left, it's uh, late 1915, Haig has just been appointed Commander-in-Chief of the BEF, and we notice a change in Douglas at this time. He's still very much the same old Douglas he's always been, but now his faith is taking on an increasingly large presence in his life. He's much more spiritual, uh, this comes through in his letters to back and forth with his sister and his wife. Um, he'd been of like a fairly standard Victorian era faith guy where like you know just very quiet churchgoer there's not a lot of proselytizing but you still go to church every sunday right um but now he's you know viewed as he's not just fighting the germans he is fighting devils he is part of leading god's army against the wicked people of germany this is always good he must have done some kind of drug at this point we don't know what it it probably it could have just been opium and a soft pillow that made him think so (laughs) Uh, or, or like radically, yeah, it yeah. might have been. It might have been. Um, what do what do Scottish believe in? Uh, swamps, grass, um, grass, uh, tweed, ladies' dresses on men, barley, Plaid. yeah, yeah. Turns yeah. out the Scots believe in almost nothing. Yeah, <laughs> except for alcoholism. Well, they don't technically believe in that either. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, Hayes uh, also believes that um, army chaplains are a vital source of morale for his troops. He starts to uh, talk to the army chaplains a lot more. Um, keeps He has like finds one guy that he really gets along with, and he attends his sermons all the time. He basically becomes Hague's private chaplain. Um, in Christmas 1915, he's quoted as saying, A good chaplain is as valuable as a good general. We are fighting for Christ and freedom of mankind. So, kind of taking on a little more um, than just fighting the German army. Now, thankfully, Haig was not um, going around trying to convert anyone. He just kept his own humble faith and thought that his soldiers should do the same, but he wasn't going to go out of his way to, like, force them into it, which I guess is one good thing. Yeah. Uh, It's also a good time to note that despite... Um, his increasing spirituality, or maybe because of his increasing spirituality, his sister Henrietta, the one who is a medium, um, is now talking much more about the spirits that she is communicating with on his behalf. So she's talking to their parents, 
um, their dead parents, long dead, telling them that she's, you know, proud of Douglas for leading the British Army. She's also saying that um, a different spirit has visited her to pass messages along to her brother, and that would be the spirit of none other than Napoleon Bonaparte of France. Oh! I thought you were going to say Benjamin Franklin, because we have a history (laughs) of talking to Benjamin Franklin via afterlife on the show. Yeah. Yeah. No, do, it's instead this time it's Napoleon. Do you think because of World War One, like the afterlife had to add a few like zip codes, you know, like or uh, <laughs> you know, area codes into there? Definitely a few new area codes and some yeah. rezoning had to had to yeah, happen. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard getting in contact with Napoleon after that giant battle we just had. The lines <laughs> are all tied. <laughs> now, uh another thing that Henrietta is doing is she's sending letters that are signed but with but um she signs them with Haig's brothers who died so she's like dictating saying that like these spirits are dictating full letters from his dead brothers and she's passing along these notes and he's fine with it he's like yeah sure i'm talking to the you know i'm sending men to their death so of course you know the spirits want to talk to me of course all right it's it's one thing to play complete strangers but to play your brother that hard boo yeah <laughs> Uh, Now, there's still a bunch of confusion between the British and the French at this time. Um, Despite Haig's promotion, they were still, um, there's still no coordination and strategy. It's very, like, back-channel. There's no, like, official lines of communication. It's, like, court gossip is dictating strategy, kind of. And then there's an equal layer of confusion between Haig leading the men on the front line and the politicians in London trying to tell him, you know, this is how we want you to wage the war. Uh, Now, the way Haig decided to get through this confusion is basically fired anybody who disagreed with him or just replaced anyone who disagreed with him. That's good. Because if there's only yes men around you, then there's no confusion, right? (laughs) Everyone knows exactly what to do. This is how all... How would he test it? How like petty? How, how petty was he? Not petty. How petty was he with like disagreements? He basically like if you disagreed with him, um, he would either like try. He'd first try to convince you why you're wrong, and then if you dug in, he'd just either go, "Okay, well, I guess I have to accept the fact that you're less intelligent than I am, and you just have to trust that I'm smarter than me, or else you can get the fuck out of here." Oh, okay. So it wasn't like. New England or Manhattan clam chowder? Which one do you prefer? There's a right answer. I just imagine his subordinate like sweating, like, uh, 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 uh. man, England. <laughs> Very good. And then shoots him in the head. <laughs> yeah. mm. um, so that meant that if Haig ever made an incorrect decision, there's going to be no one to argue him out of it. Um, however, in a way, this is an improvement on Sir John French, who was constantly going back and forth, issuing, like, contradictory orders one day, and then contradicting them the next. Um, the fact that Haig was at least consistent is good enough for it to be better than the other guy. So he is an improvement on French. And uh, French um, had the last name of French. Come on. Yeah, that was another thing. It was like the the people in charge were like, "This is just going to be too confusing for everyone in the yeah. future." So bad branding, something bad branding. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like an American guy or uh, yeah, American guy. Hey, uh, I'm Colonel Anti Semite. Yeah, 
I'm Mark Chinese. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Araki never had a chance of uh, getting command in 2003. No, no. They put him in charge, and then they walked all over him like the sand he's meant to be. <laughs> now, when Haig took command, um, it's also a very different army than the one the British had gone to war with. By February of 1916, there were more than one million British Imperial soldiers in France. Now, that, I say Imperial because this is not just the British Isles. Now, the Dominion forces have arrived in number. Um, there are Indian troops, there are Gurkha troops... Australians, New Zealands, Canadians, everywhere the British Empire has colonies, troops are getting sent here. Hey, and uh, American U.S. textbook people, uh, America is not part of the British Empire. We're not there yet. Not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the British, the BEF is going to continue to grow. Um, it peaks in August of 1917 uh, with two million men in the field. Um, but right about now, it's around one to one and a half. Throughout, the, throughout 1916. Now, Haig's experience up to this point had been leading at most 60,000 men. Now he's leading 120, uh, 1.3 million. A little oh. bit different. Uh, yeah, odd. You know, I mean, if you think about it in today's standards, that's not that many likes. He doesn't have that many <laughs> subs. Well, I'm th- I'm, really I'm, doesn't. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, it's got to be strange to be like, uh, I'm used to this many, and then all of a sudden you have a bunch of guys sitting with their thumbs up their ass. They go, "What are we supposed to do?" It's like, "Oh, sorry, I not used to this many men looking at me." Yeah. Yeah, hey, guy, hey, guy, what are we supposed to do about this, buddy? What language are you speaking, son? <laughs> I don't speak Canadian. What was that language you were talking about the last episode? Travis, the international oh, one. No, no, no oh, Esperanto. One. Esperanto. <laughs> what a funny word. Awesome. Yeah. <sighs> uh, now, also, uh, not only is this a greatly, greatly increased amount of men that Haig is leading, uh, he's no longer leading lifelong professional soldiers. Like we said, the BEF in 1914 is the most experienced fighting force in the world, even if they're one of the smallest. Um, the British Army of 1916 is largely made up of what were then called uh, the Kitchener Divisions or the Kitchener Army. So Kitchener was the Secretary of State of War in 1914. Um, When war broke out in August, millions of men from all across the British Isles enlisted in the army. Um, And this is, like, it was the first time ever that this had happened in the Victorian era. And it's everyone from, like, beggars on the street to sons of nobles and even nobles themselves volunteering for the war in this like during the summer of 1914 yeah so for such a stupid war to be fought there was so much pride on the streets to be like i want to defend my country even though you're not really defending anything you're like we said you're moving inches a day you know feet yards a day but they they had good pr guys i mean there's whole the whole like uh uh what's his name john bull who was like the predecessor of uncle sam like the we need you that was like a british poster that came out at the time and it was like yeah. this british dude being like it was kitchener it was kitchener, it was kitchener saying, yeah uh the empire wants you but and, i think it, um, i think he was named john bull right wasn't that his uh 
Uh, or maybe that was in World War Two. Yeah, I, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was Kitchener. No, the famous one that wants you is um, Kitchener. Um, so that's why they're called the Kitchener Divisions, because this is just all of these volunteers. So they have huge amounts of morale. Like you said, they're hugely patriotic people. They just they they want to do their part. So that's a good thing to have in soldiers. Um, but they have very very little training, and because you know the army is going from you know, a hundred thousand professional soldiers to a million and a half. Not only is that just like a million privates, now you need like five hundred thousand more sergeants, you need like two hundred thousand lieutenants, you need all these officers to staff it. So when they get all these recruits, they're basically like, all right, uh go choose you twelve who all mostly like either just met or have known each other for a couple of years, like from home, because we'll talk about that later. Um go pick your sergeant. And then they would choose a sergeant in like 10 minutes and then he'd come back and boom, he's a sergeant. And then other guys would be like, ah, you're going to be a lieutenant because you have a little bit of money and went to Oxford. So now you're a lieutenant to lead these hundred men. So the training is not great. Smart. Yeah. Smart. Now I said, this is how, this is how most tech companies are, you know, formulated. <laughs> how much money do you have? Yeah. Who do you know? Go pick much. a team leader. You can be C. You <laughs> You can be the CFO. I don't even know what that stands for, but yeah, we'll make why a position. not? Don't worry, you're in there. HR guru. <laughs> um, so like I said, sometimes these guys had hardly known each other. There was another phenomenon going on at this time that's going to make what's about to come even worse is there is a um idea of join together, serve together. So if you and your buddies all signed up for the army together, that meant you would get to serve in the same units. So in Victorian era England, what this meant is that whole businesses are just all joining together. So like the 65 cobblers in Liverpool, like they all join the army together. And now there's like the cobbler battalion of these guys who have all known each other. Like there's that stuff. There's um, like foothold football club clubs join together so like all the players on one team and all the supporters they join the army in one unit um it happens with fraternities it happens even if it's just like one street like all the guys that live on that one street in some fucking town in england they all serve in the same unit you mean this is bad because it lacks a diversity of like no it's bad because when that unit gets hit by a shell and 65 men die in a blink of an eye, it's 65 men who live on the same street in Liverpool and all of the families know each other and just lost an entire generation in one day. Wow, well, they do have honor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, it's one thing to lose your compatriot in war that you went to boot camp with. It's another thing to lose the kid you've known since you were two. Yeah, to lose like your closest you know? <laughs> friends and watching them drop one by one or all at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, here's I'm I'm holding little Billy's entrails in my yeah. hands. This is not scar lifelong scarring for my entire generation. Yeah. Yeah. So like and also some of these are villages where it's an entire village's male population all sign up to go to war together. It's like a village of, you know. 400 people and then all of the men might die in one day on the western front that's an interesting sign me up to, sign me up to go to that <laughs> <Yeah. village. laughs> 
<laughs> Look at all these chunky, toothless ladies looking for a man. And just to like add some flavor to this, because it's Victorian England, they just all have funny names because they're called the Pals Battalions. So it's like it's like the Norwich Pals is like one unit in the army, and then the other one is like the the Liverpool Chums, and it's like all these silly British names, and they're units in the right. Military. They're trying they're trying to actually have like a little sense of humor about it, but like we talk about it back home, it's just like. Uh, ladies in Town Square, we're going to be announcing the death of uh, all of your husbands. Uh, they were yeah. all good pallies. Lots of pals out there in the mud getting bombed. Some well, honor, also, a little more disappointment. It'll make it easier to visit their graves because they're all in the same one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and also it strikes fear into the Germans because, you know, little Fritz over there is a, oh, no, we are going against the, the Liverpool chums. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, they are such good pals. I wish I had good pals with Andros. I oh, have watched God. enough of 90s television to know that friends can do anything together. <laughs> so we're going to have an asses smeared against these friends and chums and pals. Do you think there was a brigade of uh, British people that went into, like, got over the trench, went to no man's land, just going, yeah, all those friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, so not only is all these guys serving together, because they're all new to being soldiers, they don't know even, like, the most basic skills to survive on the Western Front. So all throughout 1915, um, what was left of the British professional soldiers and then all the French and German army we're perfecting what was known as fire and movement. So it's like small, if you're doing an advance, you're sending like, you know, 20,000 men over the line, but you're doing it in like groups of a hundred and like one group is firing while the other group advances. It's just like standard military tactics. You see, these guys didn't know how to do that and could only basically do wave attacks where it's just get up and run to the objective and whoever gets there starts fighting for it right because they went to like comic book conventions and was like do y'all want to be on the same team <laughs> <laughs> okay hell yeah we do let's go run at them tactics forget tactics these people didn't know anything and I, and i think we talked about this on one of the episodes where anytime there's waves in warfare that's not smart that's just like oh, down with the first wave on to the next wave. <laughs> it implies there are going to be many, many yes. more to come because <laughs> they're not achieving what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, Haig is not helping matters. Um, like we said, he's kind of surrounded himself by yes-men. So he gives these vague orders that no one really knows what he in intends by them or they recognize that it's like a completely unobtainable objective so then they give like to their like um, subordinates like a slightly more concise version, and then it just goes down the line until what Haig had envisioned is not at all what's being carried out. Or they just recognize he doesn't even know what's going on here. We're not even going to do what he's ordering because it's stupid. Right. Yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, this like problem that his junior officers had, one historian wrote. Quote, they mostly, uh, mostly they preferred to try to interpret Haig's wishes and translate them into concrete instructions as best they could, relying on junior officers all the way down the line to implement orders that the closer to the fighting they were, the more hopeless they often seemed. Ooh. So I'm not really aware of what's going on at the front lines. Yeah, no. 
That sounds like he's very disconnected. He doesn't have a, yeah. he doesn't, he's not reading what's trending on Twitter. <laughs> he's not in touch with the common man. Yeah. Um, but Haig is still believing that the supreme breakthrough that the Western Front needs is just right around the corner. Um, and after 1915 was just, like we said, the very emblematic trench warfare, looking across at each other, lots of trench raids. Um, Winston Churchill once said that 1915 should just be called a siege, and it's not an actual battle at all. It's just like two siege lines facing each other. Um, but 1916 is going to be called the Year of Battles because this is where the big, massive World War I um, offensives takes place. So they're kind of um, sizing themselves up in 1915. Yeah, so like 1914 is this like massive eruption in violence that ends with the trench lines being established. 1915 is just trench warfare. Just like, that's all it is. Right. And then 1916 is when it finally like opens up a little bit more. Because now they know, they've, they've been able to gather their strength to launch these huge offensives um, at each other. Well, and also Germany and Austro-Hungary, they were kind of like still trying to play a bluff right like and now like right like because they 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 had never you were saying last last episode that they had never kind of intended to do another inf- uh, offensive yeah so germany had basically like their initial plan was knock france out of the war quickly and then we'll be able to defeat the russians but instead what happened is they almost knocked the russians out of the war very quickly and instead um got stopped by the french so now what they've kind of settled into at this point is like, hold the line in France and let's finish the job in Russia. Um, and Austria-Hungary is like kind of collapsing in on itself already. Yeah, so yeah. really Germany is, it's not even Austria-Hungary at this point. And the Ottomans are also collapsing too. Well, the Ottomans not, are there. Yeah. They're not even like <laughs> Germany as we know them now. It's like a bunch of like states. Wait, what? Like Germany as we know now is not the germany that is fighting this war it's a bunch yeah. of like very segregated states so well it's the, it's the german empire it's mostly yeah. unified i know um, it's mostly unified but, but they they're do not... have a lot they have a lot of poles in their army because there's no poland at this point well um, that, that's what i mean it's like it's all it's kind of all over the place like the borders had blended it's like it's a weird yeah not to say that should have really affect. I don't know. I'm just pointing it out. Not that it's would really well, affect. Well, that is what's oh, like, affecting uh, Austria-Hungary because Austria-Hungary is it's uh, German Austrians, it's the Magyar Hungarians, and they're both minorities ruling over most of Yugoslavia. So they're ruling over Slavic people who are kin to Russia, and like there are the stories in world of like Austria-Hungary ordering units to advance against the Russians. And then the Slavs in the Austria-Hungarian army walk to the Russian side, turn around, and join the Russian advance. Why like, not? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that is a good point, because, like, that is happening, but mostly on the Eastern Front. And then the Ottomans are having yeah. it happen, too. That's why the Armenian Genocide happens, is because the Ottomans think the Armenians are fighting for the Russians. So, yeah. All that's going on. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, so Haig was not alone in his belief that uh, that an offensive um, could open up the maneuver warfare, but uh, he's not. I don't know. I don't know how you could watch, look at 1915 and think that yeah, we should just keep doing that, but only bigger. Um, 
the main plan for 1916 had already been decided before Haig took control as commander-in-chief. The French commander at the time is this guy named Joseph Joffre, um, and he had argued that what we need to do is coordinate um, the French, the British, and the Russians, launch an offensive all at once everywhere along the German lines, and that somewhere will break through. Maybe it's in the French sector, maybe it's the English sector, maybe the Russians break through, and that if we all attack at once, the Germans can't be everywhere, and someone will have a breakthrough, and we can start... Was this called the army. YOLO offensive? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so the plan for the Western Front was going to be a joint offensive um, uh, between the British and the French on either side of a river that marked the dividing line in where the British positions started. So the British still have like the whole northern sector of the war. They meet the French line at the River Somme, and then the French hold the line down to Switzerland. So the idea is, well, these, this is where the two armies are attached at the line, so that's launch where we both are. Now, there are many historians that say, is that why they chose the Somme? Strictly because they were next to each other there? Or did they actually think it was the best place to break through? Because it seems more like the first. It seems more like they only did it because, well, we're next to each other here, so we should attack. That's them. what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Because the Somme River, uh, it's in northern France, it had not seen any major fighting since the very early stages of the war. And it is also arguably the single strongest position in the entire German line along the Western Front. Oh, Hit them where yeah. it hurts. Well, the Germans are very into yeah. water sports. So they were jet skiing. They were uh, <laughs> pissing on each other uh, right on the right. Somme River. They're doing it all. Which I believe when they piss on each other, it's also called German jet skiing. <laughs> so it was just peeing on. That's the yeah, only yeah, sport. Yeah. That's all it was. Yeah. It was just... <laughs> um, so the geography in this area, it's also like hard, chalky soil. Um, which means that the Germans are able to build fortresses that go like 700 feet under the surface, of, and that's where all the barracks are, and no artillery can reach it. Cave people. Um, they have like lines. Yeah, they're turn they're ca they have literally become cave trolls. They are living under the earth. They have built like ant farm like tunnels that connect their artillery lines to the front line, and. Mostly only in this area because that's like the soil actually allows you to do that. And that's where the British and French are like, this is the that's, place we need to attack. Right where the Germans that's are That's so strongest. smart. That's a good strategy. Yeah. Yes. Now, I'm going to kind of skip to the end. So when after, this, after the war is all over, um, Haig and other generals and many other historians will say that, no, the Battle of the Somme, um, even though it caused a lot of deaths on our own side... It wore down German strength um, and was the reason we were able to win later on because we really, you know, we punched them really hard in 1916 and allowed it, and they were still reeling when we beat them in 1918. Yeah, the whole kick them in the dick strategy. Yeah. Now, that would make sense if they had said that the whole idea for this battle was to do that. Instead, they said, no, we're going to break through the German lines and march to Berlin after this. So clearly this is just like revisionist mm. after the fact trying to make it seem like this was the plan all along when actually right. it wasn't. They had no real plan after mm. getting their hundred yards or whatever at the Somme, right? Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Now, initially the plans for the BEF 
um, to just kind of do holding operations, to so just kind of create the threat of an offensive so that the German resources were drawn away from this area, and then the French would lead the main attack on the river itself to break through. However, uh, this plan never gets to be put into um, place because the Germans have their own plans for 1916. Um, and on February 21st, it becomes very clear what those plans are because in a single eight-hour period, 1,000 German guns open fire with 2 million artillery shells over the French fortress city of Verdun. So that's in the southern part of um, the front line. and. Um, the Battle of Verdun has begun. That's a big one. But also, you're missing That's the fact the that big one. they had officially issued one million latex bondage suits to their soldiers <laughs> as a fashion-forward statement that says, Nuh-uh, France, you aren't coming into wherever the hell we are, the Somme. <laughs> <laughs> you aren't coming back it, into France. This is uh, where the term... It. The term kink shaming was invented. Yes. <laughs> this is where uh, they made we... the gas mask sexy again. It used to be just oh. to protect yourself. Now, now it's, it's sexy. A, now it's hot. Yeah. Now it's a good yeah. thing to put on your face when you're having several lemons put in your asshole. Or you're trying to <laughs> smoke a weed bong cigarette. Oh, yeah. That's true. We're not going to talk a lot about Verdun um, because we have a different horrific 1916 battle to come. Um, but Verdun is very controversial because there's two schools of thought. Um, you know how you're talking about how Haig will retroactively say that the Somme is this battle of attrition to wear down German strength? Same thing happens with Verdun between the French and Germans. Some people argue that what Germany was doing was trying to create a battle of attrition where the French army would just um, lose so many men that they'd give up hope that they would like seize these, this city from Verdun, um, which would force the French to like counterattack to take it back. Enough of them would die that they'd eventually give up. Others argue that the whole point was to try and capture Verdun because it was like a key linchpin in the Western Front. Who gives a shit in our purposes? We don't need to know. I personally don't care about any of it, so fine. No. Uh, I Verdun just wish, was gonna be- uh, so, I wish it was the Battle of Hoboken. No, we don't get that one yet. Um, instead, the Battle of Verdun becomes one of the most horrific of the entire war. It's known mostly for being this huge artillery battle because it's this very mountainous and forested terrain. And so there's all this crazy artillery, there's all these crazy shell holes. I definitely recommend looking up pictures of the battlefield today because all the shell holes are still there. And they're all these crazy shapes because like one shell hole is hit and then it's hit by different shells and different shells. So some of them are like super deep and super narrow. Others are met these massive craters. See, um, it's funny because yeah. like my my girlfriend's always like, I want to go to Paris and like I or uh, France, and I'm always like, Yeah, I want to go to France too. She's like, I want to see Paris, and I'm like, I want to see the World War One like shell holes. <laughs> yeah, I want to <laughs> rewalk the front line again. Yeah, <laughs> the real culture. Yeah. So um, Verdun is going to be this huge struggle. 300,000 casualties for both the French and the Germans. The battle rages all throughout 1916. It doesn't really cool off until December. Uh, each of them also suffer 150,000 dead at Verdun alone. Um, 
So this kind of knocks the French out of planning for the Somme. And not only do, um, does this mean that the British are going to be the ones leading the attack on the Somme, it means that uh, they need to move up the timetable. Because initially this was being planned for like August or September, but this uh, Verdun starts in February, and by March it almost seems like the French might drop out of the war if it keeps going this badly. Also, further complicating matters is that Joffre, who had said, you know, we're all going to launch these offensives all at once, the other offensives are not going well. Uh, Russia just lost 100,000 casualties to the Germans in a single battle and didn't divert a single German unit from the east to the west or vice versa, so the Germans are still holding steady in both fronts. The Italians had entered the war at this point. Um, despite having alliances with Germany and Austria-Hungary, the Italians had joined the Allies. And they were also going to launch an offensive to, you know, overwhelm Germany and Austria-Hungary. Instead, they lose the fifth battle of the Isonzo. There's going to be 14 battles of the Isonzo in the entire World War I. <laughs> yeah. They just keep attacking at the same place and get the same results 14 times. Well, these are really, those are really interesting battles, too, because they're all fought, if I'm not wrong, like, they're in the Alps, right? They're, so a lot yeah, of, like, the, Alp battles, like... There's a lot of Alp battles. The Isonzo, the reason that there are 14 of them is because it's like the one valley that allows for like large amounts of men to go through at once. Right. So that's why they fight 14 battles of the Isonzo. And the Italians wow. have no clue what they're fucking doing. Well, that brings us to Haig's opinion of the Italians. Here's what he had to say about them. The Italians seem a wretched people, useless as fighting men, but greedy for money. Many of them, too, are German spies. He didn't really like the Italians. I mean, I don't like them either, but I wouldn't agree with any of those points. German spies, yeah. I don't know, I don't know about that one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe you could make some uh, comparisons between Spetzel and Pazza, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you got. It seems like a stretch. Yeah, I don't I know like it them is. for other reasons. I like some Italians, don't get me wrong, but... um, Not these kinds. <laughs> Yeah, not what he's talking about. Not those World War One son of bitches. Mm -hmm. Now, as the French army is on the verge of collapse because of Verdun, uh, Haig decides to move up the timetable for his offensive at the Somme. Now it is planned to go off in Jul early July. However, the BEF does not have the capability at all to achieve the objectives Haig is laying out for it. Other commanders are seeing this and commenting to him that, look, the goals should be more limited. We shouldn't be trying to win the war in one hit. Like, let's just try and win this one battle rather than achieve the miraculous breakthrough you're always saying is going to come. But he says, no, you're just pessimistic. Um, if he had limited the objectives, it's most likely that what is coming would have been avoided. But instead, he plows ahead. Uh, so leading up to the first day, it's very chaotic. Um, all of these divisions are still being trained as they're on their way to the front lines in France. So this is all the Kitchener army now finally coming to take the fight. Um, they're low on ammunition, and they still need to stockpile enough shells to carry out an offensive, and it's just not going well. Making everything a little bit worse is on June 6th, uh, Lord Kitchener is on a boat to Russia on a diplomatic mission when the ship that is carrying him strikes a mine and sinks with all hands aboard. 
Oh. So there, thus departs our friend, Lord Kitchener. And oh. it's all because he just wanted some pierogies. Mm-hmm. Or to win a he war, some caviar Travis, okay? Don't to sell kids short. To win a war? Are you kidding me? Pierogies. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Yeah, so Kitchener is dead. Um... This kind of is not great for Haig. Kitchener is someone who had always looked out for him, always trusted him, so now Haig is a little bit more out on his own. So now we're up to the, finally up to the Battle of the Somme. Uh, on June 24th, 1916, the bombardments begin. So it's planned to be a week of artillery barrage and bombardment. Um, this reaches its peak on June 26th, with like millions of shells being fired every day. However, um, there's some cloud cover, so that pesky weather's getting in the way again. Dude, um, air is important still. You said air wasn't going to be important now. Winds, yeah. disease is important. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, so this is not helping because now the aircraft can't really tell um, how effective the artillery barrage is or even if it's hitting anything of consequence. Um, they are also not really succeeding in drawing German forces away from this place, even though Verdun is still happening. The German line is as strong as it ever was on the Somme. Um, yeah, however, they're running out of stockpiled shells. Also, I just want to point out, like, aircraft at the time, it wasn't like World War One, where they were having, like, dogfights and, like, air superiority, like, in Korea. You mean World War Two. Oh, yeah, sorry, World War Two. It was mainly observational and... If they were doing bombings, it was literally a guy throwing grenades out of... Yeah. So this is... the They do end up doing the dogfighting, but that's more um, 1917. Yeah. And that like, is when the aircraft have the capability of doing it. 1916 is still the era of, like, they bring a pistol aboard, and they'll try and shoot each other with pistols while flying planes. That's so fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's the best. And it's, like, it's insane, because it's like wow, that could never work. And then you remember that these planes are going like 35 miles an hour in the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of reasonable. They're only like 120 feet off the ground. It's reasonable to think you could shoot someone with a pistol. Like sure, that. yeah, yeah. You, know? you just got to shoot, shoot uh, you know, a bit to the way they're going, you know, shoot where they're going to be, <laughs> yeah, not where they are. Lead them a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And also when you're thinking like, like with, with the Red Baron and the dog fights, like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but like, what are they fighting over? It's just like, what can you see? You know it's what I bragging mean? Like, rights. It's, it's like, bragging rights. It doesn't matter what happens yeah, in the air. Yeah, it's still about yeah. ground advancing. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they're they're protecting like a huge bombing run like in Dresden or something like that. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's you know, stupid. <laughs> Maybe you were protecting a Zeppelin because the Germans were using their Zeppelins to bomb London, but <laughs> yeah. a little different than, you know, a 200 bombers in world war ii rolling over this guy couldn't yeah. you in theory shoot down a zeppelin from the ground like with bullets yeah i think eventually they do shoot down a few and then the germans kind of call off the zeppelin war but they did have a lot of zeppelins and they used them to bomb british cities for a while right hmm very cool i think it's like once the planes got better um the zeppelins were obsolete but they were used for um observation they're good at that yeah because you got a guy on the shore going hey, we got these big old balloons headed our way let's throw one guy with a pistol up there <laughs> to shoot the fucking balloon just throw one guy with a giant like pin like an oversized yeah. <laughs> pin with like the head of the, of the needle right it's like oh 
Why not? Well, you know how like they have the planes that have the tow rope for the advertisements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just send it up with it, but instead of like the hook at the bottom, it's just the big sword. <laughs> like, just, like, <laughs> yeah. Through the point, the zeppelin. A whole bunch of thumbtacks and some. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some mace on the end of it. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that big bombardment. It's been going on for a week. Surely they must have done something. However, not only did most of the shells miss or were complete duds, like they don't even explode on impact, um, the ones that do are ineffective. The German defensives are far deeper uh, than they believed. This deeper both as in like under the ground and also extending beyond the front line itself. So now, not only do you have the front line, you have all these support trenches, and the Germans know to not just, like, defend with everything the front line, it's like, no, the plan is defend it for a little bit, fall back to an even stronger position, and then fall back to an even stronger position, and then once the British are overextended, counterattack. That's what, like, the German doctrine was now. Gotcha. So, uh, they fire, um, they fire 1.6 million shells total. Um, and one million of those were intended to take out that those huge piles of barbed wire we were talking about, Travis. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest hindrance to advancing infantry. So you got to take out all of those. Yeah, um, it's not it's not the barbed wire you see when you're passing some cattle. It's no. piles and piles of barbed. It's wire. like ten feet tall and twenty feet wide, yeah. and zigzagging across a hill. So stupid. and there's four rows of that. <laughs> It's so stupid. Just put yeah. some bricks up. Uh, yeah, no, the bricks... bar- barbed wire is way more. Uh, it's super highly effective. It really works. Did they also? It's interesting because I think I read something a while about the evolution of barbed wire during World War One because there was a technological evolution. I'm pretty sure razor wire was developed at that point. Yep. Um, because it started out literally just the cattle companies being yeah. like, here's a whole bunch of barbed wire. And then they, and it was um, American firms that were selling it the most because they already had like the production lines because of the ranches out West. Yeah. So, like, yeah. That's where yeah. America made a huge amount of the money in World War One was selling barbed wire. Yeah. Amazing. And yeah, literally they evolved into razor wire where it's like you touch it and you start bleeding, you know, as opposed yeah. to barbed wire, which you can you know, if it isn't and a mound that's huge, it really like catches you, whereas razor yeah. wire is just gonna slice you open if you touch yeah. it. Um, the German machine gun emplacements were also another target. Uh, and barely any of them were taken out of commission. Um, so it's not looking great. They do a trench raid the night before the f- planned offensive, and they realize like, hey. The artillery hasn't d- taken out anything. All of these defenses are still up. Um, and if anything, it's actually made it worse because the shells that they're firing are shrapnel shells for the most part, which like means they explode and just spray out a bunch of shrapnel. That doesn't take out barbed wire. All it does is jumble it. And so now there's no path through the wire. So then if they even had explosives, what the explosives would do though is they didn't have a good fuse, so instead of exploding on top of the wire and then destroying it, it would go through the wire into the earth and then throw the barbed wire up in the air when it exploded, and it would just land back down unharmed. (laughs) Smart! Yeah. So, despite all this evidence um, that this isn't going to go well, the morning of, Haig still steps out, gives the order to attack. 
And so on July 1st, the British whistles all blow and the men go over the top of the front lines. Now, I, I got to ask this question too, Connor. Um, I feel like it was later in the war. Was it after this when they started to develop like the Mark I tanks and things like that? Yeah. So the Mark I, um, I don't know if it was the Mark I specifically, but tanks make their debut, debut at the Somme, but like four okay. months after day one. Okay. Um, but they're not really used to any sort of effectiveness until 1917. They're just not that useful at this point. Right, right, right. Um, so now they go over the top. Um, in some places, uh, the artillery had done its job, or the German defenses were just weaker in those places, and some of the day one objectives are achieved. Um, the French, who are carrying out a much smaller portion of this attack, they actually like wildly overachieve their expectations because the German line just wasn't that strong there. However, in most of the battlefield, this did not happen. And instead, what happened is line after line of British soldiers went over the top of the trench, only to be mown down by machine guns mere moments later. The numbers were not calculated until you know months after the battle. But it was later figured out that on July 1st, the British suffered 58,000 casualties, including 19,000 killed, all in about 12 hours of fighting. And most of the death probably occurred within the first hour and a half of the attack. Because wow. that's when they're just going over the top. God damn. Yeah, it's, uh, how many 9-11s is that? Uh... <laughs> Eight, 20, at least? 20, Eight, 9, 11. If oh, yeah. we're doing casualties, it's like 30. But if it's just the dead, then 9, uh, 9 11. Same thing. Yeah. They're all dead now. They're all yeah. dead now. So, Dude, uh, jet fuel can melt humans. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I feel like a lot of things we don't see in these war games or war movies is like, yeah, the barbed wire is is... I keep going back to the barbed wire. But that's like hard to get through but then when you have a whole bunch of people rushing over into no man's land the bodies become an obstacle where yeah. like there's literally if you think about it's unimaginable the number of bodies that are in front of you as you're trying to cross this area and it's like the bodies then become also an obstacle for the germans because it's now the british dead are providing cover for the british who are alive and the right. british dead are also you can walk over a guy's dead body to avoid the barbed wire, which is happening all along the line. Wow. You know, yeah. I, you got to think that maybe the inventor of the moon shoe had been around during this time. And so I just saw the need to be able to take a, an extra step here and there, you know, without yeah. putting your foot down and getting it trapped in someone's bloody guts. Yeah, yeah. you'll hear the, the whistle blow and you'll know you have that extra bounce in your step right, to get exactly. to the other side of no man's land. Yeah, the one yeah. guy with moon shoes could have won the whole war <laughs> had they been invented. But you know what? That's one of the that's that's what I like to call a fortune of war. The moon shoe. Yeah. The moon shoe. Now there are all these uh crazy stories about July first because of just how horrific all this carnage is. <clears throat> in some places and along the line, um the British soldiers don't even get out of their trenches because, like, once the artillery barrage ended, the Germans were able to get to the machine guns and their range is actually within range of the front line and they just mow them down in the trench. Um, in other places, there, there's, like, reports of soldiers going over the top and, like, they're kicking a soccer ball in front of them as they're, like, attacking the German line and then just getting mown down with machine guns. That's uh, that's. I feel like that's that ballsy British, like... 
stupidity. <laughs> yeah. Let me go kick a soccer like a little footy down the man. Right? <laughs> have a little kick around, lads. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but was this also at a time of the war when if you just said fuck no and you ran oh, the other way, they'd shoot the you? They'd yeah, shoot you're getting, you. Up. You're getting yeah. killed. Okay. That's yeah. what, every army at this point, except for. I think the Australians are the only ones who don't have the death penalty. And they are also, like, you see the highest proportion of deserters from Australians rather than any other armed forces because they didn't have a death penalty for that. Right, but they're also like, we're, we live in Australia. It's like hell. Yeah, we're <laughs> it's already like it's worse. What they got to yeah. do send me back to my home? <laughs> um, yeah, my home that's fucking hell. Where it's we hot have, as fuck. They got mad spiders everywhere. Yeah, we had, like, barbecues of shrimp every day, and we go surfing and gorgeous babes. Like, man, that's hell on earth. Everyone looks like fucking Donald Pleasance molesting people. <laughs> oh, this is bad enough. Yeah. Uh, now, in some places along the lines, as we said, whole battalions simply cease to exist. I think there's, like, one whole brigade where they're just killed to the last man because of how quickly it all happens. Um, in other places, Germans stop shooting once they realize how hopeless the british attack is they just stop trying to kill the british because the british are already just in panic disarray so rather than mow down another thousand guys they let them drag the wounded away that's sad yeah that's, yeah it's that's like they're taking pity like on them because it's they've already killed like a thousand guys in front of them so it's like ah let them go we'll just yeah. <laughs> let them run home to their mothers yeah, that's kind of yeah. like in Pee Wee soccer when like en like enough kids don't show up for the your your game when they're like, yeah, we'll lend you a few kids so you can like finish the game out. Yeah, because mm -hmm. because adults, it's very important that we uh, keep this hierarchy going for competitive <laughs> yeah. sports for children in the third grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the, the craziest part about the psalm is is like it's the very it's the prototypical. You blow the whistle, the first wave walk, like, steps out of the parapet, goes five feet, and all of them are dead. And then you wait two minutes, because that was what you were told to do, and then you blow the whistle again, and then the next line of men go over the parapets, make it ten feet, get shot down by machine guns. And it happens all day long. That's fucking dumb. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry to kind of, like, do a little diatribe here, but, like, that's why I'm so interested in World War One. It's like, what were the thoughts of these people? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's so insane to know that, like, literally you just watched, like, all your friends stand up and get shot. And I know and you're you going to have to. And then you have to do the shot. same thing. And you came yeah. in as pals and chums. You know, like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And for a lot of them, for most of the units on July 1st, it was their first combat experience. Oh. Like this is they'd never fired a gun at the enemy and now they're stepping over the trench in this in this battle. Yeah. And then look, look, Hollywood comes along and they're like, they're all about big horse. And we don't even get real movies about World War One. We get war horse. We get more stories about horses. Who cares about horses? Well, I Haig cares Haig about horses. Haig yeah. does. Yeah. I care about the boys. He did, he did have two cavalry divisions. Uh, ready to go at the Somme. They were ready for the moment that the order came through to charge through and have that glorious cavalry charge, but he didn't end up using them. Instead, uh, the day after, on July 2nd, um, 
at this point they like i said they don't know the full numbers but it's estimated that like all right, hey we're gonna lose about we thought we think we lost forty thousand men yesterday uh in casualties haig wrote in his diary quote this cannot be considered severe in view of the numbers engaged and the length of front attacked so he saw all of this and goes well you gotta consider you know we had a lot of men it's fine we're it's we're doing good this is like the mentality of a third grader uh, with their parents' credit card playing like Candy Crush or Clash of Clans. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just like $100 of points that I spent. <laughs> <laughs> but consider all the thousands of dollars I didn't spend. Yeah. Yeah, my dad probably makes like a million dollars a year like everyone else does around me. Yeah. Can't be. What's a hundred of dollar? Dude, if my dad is not a millionaire, then I don't even want to live anymore. Swag. <laughs> it's like that that King of the Hill episode, Bobby thinking that uh, Hank's checks were all the bonus that he got. My dad makes this every week. Yeah, <laughs> we must be millionaires. <laughs> but it's um, very baby mentality that Hig has. Yeah. Well, he also doesn't now, like he he's. He's so removed from people. He spent his time around royals and stuff like that. They That's don't. True. Yeah, they're, they're, and, they don't even like people. They say yeah. they do, but even to this day, they don't care. And on July first, like while sixty thousand British casualties are being taken on July first, Haig goes through his normal daily routine. He rides his horse in the morning. He goes back to general headquarters. He writes a bunch of letters. He receives a bunch of letters. He does has lunch. Yeah. Probably eaten caviar, has his afternoon horse ride, and then comes back for, you know, in bed, lights out by 10. Right. I imagine if Haig talked to, like, Tommy from Birmingham, and, like, <laughs> Tommy's like, hey, Haig, you want to hear a joke? Uh, what's the best clam I ever had? A gash. And Haig's like, I don't understand. What is a gash? Uh, how do I, what is a vaginus? <laughs> how do I get this guy away from me is what he's saying. Yeah, talking. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have you shot if you keep talking yeah. to me. <laughs> um, so the battle—it's uh, bad enough if you know July 1st is the end of the battle, but it's not. The battle of the Somme would continue for months. Uh, initially, Haig and some of his commanders are seeing, "Oh, you know, we're, we've achieved success. Yeah, we didn't achieve our day one objectives by the end of July, but we still achieved some of them in some places." Um, and every time they captured a single trench or a single village, they were like, great, the breakthrough is right around the corner. We've, get, we're, we've got them on the run. Um, they constantly are reporting that, they, that German morale is going to shatter and that the German army is just going to surrender in mass, um, even though the troops on the front lines are saying, that's not true at all. The Germans are fighting harder than they've ever fought. There is no flagging morale on the German side. But Haig is, keeps reporting this to London. Is there gas deployed in this first attack, or...? Uh, yeah, there's still gas. Um, probably, it's up to the yeah. shells now. Like, now there's gas shelling. But they've also... There's this, like, whole science behind artillery at this point. It's really crazy shit. Because it's like... There's mixing of high explosive shrapnel and gas, and it's like figuring out how to mix them and how to plan them out. Um, to have the most success then there's also like the creeping barrages are coming where um, when the infantry advances the 
cur curtain of artillery fire is only like a hundred yards in uh -huh. front of them. And so it's all timed out perfectly as the troops walk behind the exploding shells. Uh, okay. And so it's like explosives in one part of it and then sh shrapnel beyond it and gas in a different sector. It's like all this. Right. So it's like it's an art very much. Yeah. Like a, a very much Haig has become Michael Bay. When will the pyrotechnics be yeah. the best? When do we start the five <laughs> machines? I want these boys walking in no man's land upright. Well, explosions go off left yeah. and right. <laughs> and we get lens flares. How do we, how do we deploy the flares. artillery lens flares? <laughs> uh, so this continues at the Somme. Um, as I said, in September, they f uh, debut tanks for the first time. And even though they have like overwhelming success on their first day, there's not enough of them to really change the strategic view on the ground. And they're also, after that first day, like the technology to keep them up to date in the field isn't there. So like once they break down, they're out of commission. Whereas, you know, in World War II, you're able to, if a tank gets knocked out of commission, you can repair it in, the day, in a day, even if you're 10 miles deep into enemy they, territory. That's not happening. They also move like eight miles per hour. And... Uh, like literally, they couldn't get over the trenches. That's why when you see the later, yeah. uh, ver when you see like later uh, footage of these these tanks, they carry bushels of hay on their uh, on the tank so they can fill yeah. the yeah. trench in so they can clear the trench. Because <laughs> they were sending mm -hmm. these things over and they'd hit the trench and then just get stuck in the trench. <laughs> their yeah. own trenches. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. There's also, um, like, the tr the tanks don't have guns on them. Um, like, maybe there's a machine gun on the <laughs> sides, but there's no main artillery piece, like the way the modern tank you'd think of has one. Um, it's really just, like, it's a way to get a group of 10 to 30 soldiers, because these are huge tanks also. They're way bigger than what tanks are even today. Because it's just, like, how can we get 30 soldiers across no man's land before they get blown to bits? Well, put them in a steel cage and <laughs> roll it over. Um, they're also not, so like, because they don't have a gun also, what they do is they just roll over machine gun nests and just crush them with their weight, and, like, that's how you take out a German machine gun nest with a tank. I mean, that bit works, right. I suppose. Well, until, until yeah. later in the war, war, when they've figured out how to come out with, uh, ammunition that can pierce said, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> steel. <laughs> so. Yeah. So the Somme advance will continue all the way through November. So it begins on July 1st. Finally, the attacks are called off in the um, middle of November. There's very little to show for it. Um, they've captured maybe like a, a mile or two at most in some areas, but like they never even captured the main river crossings they were going for. They never captured any like German like supply stations. So all even the land that they are taking is just it's just land. It's not land that has any meaning for, like, winning the war. Uh, what they all do have to show for themselves, though, is 420,000 casualties, including 80,000 dead British <gasps> soldiers. Wow. Yeah, the numbers just kind of numb you at a certain point. I mean, I didn't know any of these people, so do I care? Not you know really. Tommy from Birmingham? I know a few Tommies <laughs> from Birmingham, but I don't think it's the same guy. Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> 
Um, so the Somme, as we said, massive casualties for both uh, the British and the French, um, and inflicted about 500,000 casualties on the Germans. So it does, you know, the British have more soldiers to lose. So in a way, sure, that's a victory, but I don't know how you can call 100,000 dead a victory at that point. And also, with the Somme, you have uh, these underground trenches, right, that they've they've dug into this certain... The Germans have dug into the bedrock. Yeah. There's also, like, an underground element to this battle, right? Am I... Yeah. Where so, you literally have people digging in one direction, and... Yeah they'd hear other people digging and then they set explosives. There was an underground war going on above. Yeah. The so trench. one of the, one of the uh, opening phases of July 1st, like the, the first action that morning <clears throat> is they detonate a series of mines that they've dug under the German trench. So yeah. like four huge mine shafts just erupt at like five 30 in the morning um, and just like cave out parts of the German line. And that gets even more intense. Um, later on and uh, yeah i mean uh that tunnelers yeah yeah i mean how terrifying must that have been to be yeah. one of those people no digging lights. no lights you're just digging forward you're the rumble of explosions going on above your head the thing might collapse on you which it did you know mm -hmm. a lot of times it man. makes like a lot of the under underground rap battle scenes that have happened in queens and brooklyn and yonkers and stuff it makes them seem a little smaller by comparison yeah, yeah those yeah. are tame compared to this yeah that's actually what they were trying to do they were trying to meet the germans so they could have an underground rap battle in yeah. the center of the war yeah <laughs> turns yeah. out germans can't rhyme so they brought dynamite yeah. <laughs> and techno music yes yeah. <laughs> that's how you can tell if you're getting close to the trench scooter <laughs> you can hear the bass this beat is far too fast for me to freestyle over <laughs> um now can we blame all of this on haig uh yes and no um the truth of the matter is that the horrific casualty numbers are guaranteed just no matter who is in charge of the Western Front, because the technology, the geographical limitations, all of it would, if you're going to launch an offensive, it's going to lead to these overwhelming um, amount of casualties. One historian I read who is very critical of Haig, who basically blames Haig for a lot of things, he still kind of forgives him in this respect. Um, he writes about the psalm, Quote, the basic and stark fact was that the conditions of warfare between 1914 and 1918 predisposed towards slaughter, and that only an entirely different technology, one not available until a generation later, would have averted such an outcome. So basically, this is going to happen no matter who is in charge. But Haig was the one in charge, so we can blame him for his own shortcomings in, in it. Sure. Right. And this is where he gets his nickname, right? It's the Butcher of the Psalm. The Butcher of the Somme, yeah. So that's this is like what he's most blamed for is the fact that on especially July first, you know, sixty thousand men dying, twenty thousand or sixty thousand sixty thousand casualties, twenty thousand dead, most of them within twenty minutes of the battle starting because they're just standing up and getting mown down. So yeah, Haig takes a lot of the blame for that. But I, I feel like it's easy for him to get that name with the way that he was like, oh, yeah, it's just these numbers, you know? Yeah, yeah that is very, because he's, the picture you've painted thus far in the series, he's, he's very detached from humanity. So, yeah. hmm. you know. So after the Psalm, um, 
it you know kind of quiets down again as it tends to do in the winter. Uh, in December fifth, nineteen sixteen, a big change happens. Uh, David Lloyd George, the guy who was the munitions minister that we mentioned, he becomes prime minister. He replaces Herbert Asquith. Now, David Lloyd George and Haig did not get along and will not get along for the duration of the war. Uh, one of the main reasons that Haig's reputation takes like a nosedive um, after his death is because David Lloyd George ensures that that happens. Oh. Yes. Um, another major shakeup also occurs two days, uh, 12 days later. Joseph Joffre, the commander-in-chief of the French army, who'd been commander-in-chief of the French army since the outbreak of the war, he's finally replaced. Um, he basically takes the blame for Verdun. So now um, we've got two new players in. He is replaced by a man named Robert Nivelle. Um, and Haig achieves another final promotion um, after the Somme. So he gets promoted after the Somme, whereas Joffre got fired after Verdun. Uh, he is now appointed as Field Marshal, which is the highest possible rank anyone in the British Army can attain. And now he is Field Marshal Douglas Haig. Right, so he's, he's already reached max level, and now they've prestiged him. Yeah, now right. he's prestiged. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah, it only takes um, a number, a random number of deaths on your side. We don't need to get into the number because it's been yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. once you have passed that threshold, you're basically gold star. You're good. Yeah. You've done it. You've done it. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Lloyd George ne next episode. He didn't think much of Haig. He didn't think much of the British Army in general. Uh, he went so far as to say that the French had the superior army, um, even though that the French losses were even worse than the British losses at this point, and not just like on a numbers perspective, but even on a percentage-wise, the French are losing more men than the British. Um, but for the rest of the war, Lloyd George is going to do as much as he possibly can to either get Haig removed from command, or at least remove Haig from making any sort of strategic decision going forward. And so they will continue to struggle that over the next two years, as we will see in the coming episodes. Premium. All right. Rush. Mm -hmm. Riveting stuff. Yeah, Very, a lot um, of dead people. Yeah, I got to say, there's not a lot of room for fun and jokes in these, uh, that, that episode. I kind of no. just found myself listening going, oh. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Also, I, 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 I'm interested. This is what, we can end with a kind of a question, because right Haig is very much a horse boy. Mm -hmm. But as we saw in World War One, the uh, the uh, machine version of a horse, the bicycle, became the messenger <laughs> of letters and everything. Like Haig probably hated them, right? I don't know what he thought about bicycles. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> he did love tanks, to his credit. Like He oh. did think tanks were really cool, but he didn't really use them that effectively. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wonder what he thought about bicycles. But that's also a weird thing about it too. Is like literally, how do you get messages around a dickhead, a fucking asshole yeah. that rides in the middle of the road, delivers <laughs> messages for the army? Yep. That's well, what's going on? Well, it's the army. You don't have nearly as much traffic. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. already at so, work. They sleep in their office, <laughs> i.e., a trench. Yeah, mud and gore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that like that big quote that I read, where the guy was saying like, if there's just a different technology available. What he means is radio. That's the crazy thing. If you give either army in World War I 
like the World War II version of, of radios, that army is going to win the war easily. Because, like, there's no quick communication in World War I. It's all you're saying. It's runners. It's bicyclists. It's carrier pigeons yeah. going back to the headquarters. It's not right. even just bicyclists. It's fucking pigeons. It's yeah. bird people delivering <laughs> messages. So it, it, it's, that's pretty wild, too, to think of it in terms like that. Now, I didn't know that the radio was so far off. They Invention, had radio, but it's like, it's like the 1970s computer, you know, it's like, it's the size of a house and it's like, doesn't, it's a one way radio. So right. you can't really broadcast on a channel. Like there's no private channels. Yeah. You can't do codes. And, and, and even Tom, even in World War II, the radio was a backpack. You yeah, know, it no, wasn't seen... like, it wasn't like a little two way radio. You know what I mean? So it's just like crazy that, that, I don't know. It's hard to like put your brain into that level yeah, of you'd think like technology if if you just ordered a battalion over the top and then watched them all die 30 yards in front of you you'd think we should ask command if we should call this off but instead you can't talk to command and the orders are send everybody so then you will basically are just like trapped and i guess we send the next wave and like there's also even when the battles are going well there's no way to like radio back and say like hey we got him on the run. Send us help. Instead, it's like, hey, Jimmy, run back the three miles that we just covered and tell them that we're doing well. And by the time Jimmy gets back, he's got no legs. Yeah. Release yeah, he's got no legs if he even made it there. Release a trash eagle that probably will get blown up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and carrier pigeons are only one way. You can only send them back to the, the headquarters. You can't send them to the front lines. Oh, it's just it mind-boggling with World War yeah. One to me. You know, it's they could have used some, well, based on the lack of wind, they really could have used some Native Americans there to do some smoke signaling. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. They need some Cherokees. Yeah, a couple of those. Well, either way, I'm excited to learn more about this horrible, horrible event um, known as the Great War. Um, I, that's what I would even great? call it now. Yeah, it's, it's also the war to end all wars. This is the last one. The last one. That's correct. That's good. Good to know. Because every... there's not going to be a second world war if this is the war to end all wars. All right, so maybe they got it wrong because World War <laughs> II was actually a war, but every other war after that was a conflict, Connor. That's true. You You're know, right. it's not actually actions. a war. Not a war. It's a police action. <laughs> yeah. Good right. job, guys. We solved the war. Yeah, just call it a conflict. <laughs> no more wars. We don't have wars anymore. We so, just so, have a... It's a scuffle. We have a bunch of nerds yeah. fighting each other. <laughs> All right. Um, Connor, thanks again for doing research. Um, thanks for making it to the end of the episode, everyone. Um, you belong here. If you don't like war, listen to this show. If you love war, examine this show closely. Yeah. Um, Good advice. That's what I'm saying. You got you to know, know what you like and what you don't like. And what is it good can... for? Absolutely learning. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. And with that, um, go to patreon.com slash roastmortemcast. We are going to give all that money to Mike's fund to get him new legs. Even though his <laughs> legs are fine as of now, we know he has a bad history with legs. Yeah, he so, was in the war yeah. of Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk yeah. is a brutal dictator. He stalled millions of children to go skateboard. <laughs> this is true. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yes, and go to roastmortemcast.com to buy merchandise that Travis has designed. The shirts fit. The hats, depending on your head size, will fit. There's wieners and boobs on them. It's the kind of shit you want to put on your body and to uh, to start your your Christmas your Christmas conversations with your family with. Yeah, there and they was... go. Hey, why is there a, a dick on your hat? And you go because you're gay, Grandpa. There was no goes, <laughs> there was no gay there was no gay there was no Black Friday sale because I do, we do not make any money on them. We lose no. money. If you're from we out of care. the country, we lose money. So we love you. Yes. <laughs> We love you.